0: You're listening to the Clinical Appraisal Podcast, where we discuss the science and theory of nursing and amplify high-quality scientific ideas based on valid and empirical methods from a pragmatic philosophical standpoint. My name is Ian Lane, and I'm your host. I'm a critical care nurse and a research methodologist interested in philosophy, research design, and statistical analysis. I'm here to take you with me on my journey to understand and reconceptualize what nursing science is and is not and ultimately to bring this field that I'm so passionate about more into the public eye. If you want to get in touch, please email me directly at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. I do try my very best to respond to all emails. Please also leave the show a positive rating and comment a review to help move the algorithm along so that others may be exposed to this content as well. It does really help. Whether you're a nurse, a physician, a scientist, or a student— a philosopher, or none of these things, or whether you know anything at all about experimental design, I'm glad you're here and you found this podcast, and I hope that you'll stick around. This little pod brief, as I'm calling it, is going to touch on two topics that I've been talking about with some folks this week. The first is the importance of qualitative research, but the pitfalls of relying on qualitative research for generalizable conclusions, which I know we've discussed before, but I'm going to talk about it from a little bit of a different perspective. And The other point I'd like to discuss is the critical import of clinicians in evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice broadly. In our case, evidence-based nursing and the importance of clinical nurses in that process. So let's start with what I think of as the simpler of the two, although it really depends on the perspective you have. So in terms of qualitative research, I believe that qualitative research is crucial. Now, most people listening know that I value mixed methods, but I have a particular proclivity for uh, quantitative-oriented research. And one of the reasons, although this is one of many reasons, that I value quantitative research so heavily and so highly is because I think of quantitative research as cutting against our biases, if well done, even when we wish that it didn't. (laughs) If you organize a quantitatively robust study well enough, there's virtually no way that you can hoodwink yourself with your own biases unless you mishandle or misrepresent the project in some way, shape, or form. Now, that's not to say there aren't ways of getting around this in terms of, like, inserting your own biases into the analyses or things like this. But what I'm saying is, in this sort of ideal circumstance, doing a robust quantitative project is more likely to lend you a disappointing result because it doesn't converge with your biases than if you were to do qualitative research. But there's an even more important reason as to why this is the case, which I'd like to touch on briefly now. A couple of years ago, so I have some irritable bowel syndrome-like functional abdominal pain periodically, and I suspect that they are related to my migraines. I have a working hypothesis that my migraines days, I suppose that's one way of thinking about them, are almost always correlated with my so-called IBS days. And this is sort of an aside, but the real point I want to bring up is that during that period of time a couple summers ago, when I essentially set up a, you know, a health diary for a hundred days and tracked a hundred lifestyle factors and did my own multiple regression analyses with post hoc comparisons, et cetera, et cetera, to see what was related to what. In terms of my migraines, I also did a similar type of project or secondary type analysis for my functional abdominal pain symptoms. And what I noticed is that some of the things that I thought were related to my abdominal pain were not. So I had become convinced prior to doing those analyses that it was my intake of eggs that was contributing to my IBSD. And interestingly enough, so if you had asked me, you know, three months prior to doing those analyses, because virtually every time I ate eggs in the morning, you know, a couple times a week or whatever that might have been at the time. I would almost consistently experience IBSD-like symptoms, and of course, it was worse on migraine days. And there are lots of different, uh, you know, covariates and factors involved there that I did not get a chance to think through at the time, or you know, subsequently evaluate within my data set. The point being if you had asked me i would have been convinced and i would have convinced you i might like to think anyway that it was significantly related the eggs were significantly related to my functional abdominal pain and my ibsd symptoms then i and i convinced myself of this to the degree that i i had begun to tell people i was i had an intolerance to eggs and i had thought like perhaps it was the albumin protein in the egg whites. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll start eating egg yolks for the um, essential fatty acids and some of the minerals and things that are in the yolk. And um, I started playing around with stuff like that. And if I had, if somebody had included me in a qualitative research study, asking about my functional abdominal pain and my IBSD symptoms, I would have convincingly brought up this point about eggs as an important component in the relation of my IBSD symptoms for my diet. However, flash forward to my objective quantitative analyses, there is no correlation between eggs and my IBSD symptoms, which actually was shocking to me. And as I said in the beginning of this pod, definitely cut against the, bias-y that I, the bias that I had about this problem. Now, that's just one example. I also had convinced myself, not to any delusional degree, but to, you know, within some reason, and for some rationale, that gluten, or maybe glutenin, or gliadin, one of the components of gluten, might have been, you know, persistently causing some irritation in my gut or something like that. You know, perhaps it was That I needed to cut out gluten, or maybe I needed to remove some of the fructooligosaccharides and the FODMAPs from my diet, and maybe that was contributing. But here's my point, right? My point is that I believed heavily, based on my personal so-called lived experience, my personal experience, that these pieces of my diet had a significant relationship to play with my functional abdominal pain symptoms. And yet when I analyzed them objectively, they didn't. And I was convinced that they did. Which teaches me something important. It teaches me that despite what we sometimes think is related to our symptomatology, when it's examined and scrutinized in an objective, quantitative sense, that often that often does not come to light. And I just, I cannot argue with the mathematics. I, you know, it just is what it is. And that's okay. Now, could it be that I just did not study the proper thing? Maybe I didn't organize my measurement of egg intake in a, a in a proper fashion? I find it difficult to imagine exactly how that would be. But, but it's possible. But the idea that I couldn't even approximate a correlation coefficient above, you know, 0. 0.02, I think it was, 0. 0.03 which is virtually nothing, which accounts for essentially 0% of the variance, if I were to look at the coefficient of determination that r squared. So the point is, I was biased myself, but I firmly believed it. And I know I'm beating a dead horse here, and I apologize, but I think it's important to recognize this because what happens when you do a qualitative study and you start to ask people about their experiences? Well. They start to tell you what they think relates to certain elements of their experience of health, in our case, in nursing. And, and that's great. And here's the value of qualitative research, right? The value of qualitative research in its, is in its hypothesis generation. That's the value. And that is still valuable because I had a hypothesis that I could then go forward and test Now, it turns out it had no relationship, but that's okay because I learned something that I would not have learned if I didn't test my own hypothesis. However, if I had gone the rest of my life assuming that I was correct in terms of my experience of eggs, which, by the way, has not panned out even in my experiential reality, so if you had asked me two years after I did those, which is about now, I would say, I've been able to eat eggs ever since. And... You know, there are some days where I still have symptoms, but most days I don't necessarily have symptoms. And I have not noticed that that relationship has persisted. And, uh, you know, I think that was an important hypothesis to test. And so the value of asking me the question or, you know, in my own uh, case, asking the question of myself and then testing it in a more robust quantitative manner allowed me to critically examine whether or not there was any validity to that idea. And while I think there was validity to it, it turned out to be wrong. The point is that there are so many qualitative researchers now who who have gone beyond the hypothesis generation bit for qualitative research to then claim that they are able to extrapolate and generalize across people with their qualitative research and or to generate some knowledge, some objective facts about the state of the world or the state of health for those people, even. And ignoring the fact that I would have been woefully incorrect. I was already woefully incorrect, but I would have been (laughs) even more... Woefully incorrect if I were to then extrapolate beyond me to other people with functional abdominal symptoms to then say, and it might be relevant for them too. Because not only is it not relevant for anybody but me because it's my own lived experience, it's also not relevant for me despite my own personal experience. Now, again, I want to close this out by saying please do not misunderstand or misrepresent what I am suge- I'm suggesting here. I am not saying that qualitative research has no value and that it's always biased and that there's no... No, no, no. What I'm saying is, and I, this is the last time I'll say it because I know I'm, again, I'm beating a dead horse here, it is, its value is derived from its ability to generate novel and important hypotheses. And then you have to test those rigorously and robustly with quantitative methods thereafter. That's the fact I'm trying to get across. So that's number one. Number two. I know people think of me as an evidence-based practice guy, as somebody who's interested in the use and implementation of quantitative methods and and the like across medicine, nursing, psychology, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And that's true. I am that person. I am very, very skeptical of the old arguments about one's clinical expertise as the sole reason for them to administer some therapeutic, for example. And, the, and this gets very hairy in nursing. And of course, other professions as well, healthcare disciplines as well, where we have so many clinical interventions that we do on a really, yeah, daily basis that we just have no evidence for, that is passed down almost as if through old oral traditions, as if by fireside, that it's hard to know if we should ever do anything. And yet, we have to because we are a practice based discipline. This, of course, also incites the passion I have for trying to increase the evidence based practice in our field because I see it as crucial, which I've talked about ad nauseum. I don't, I don't need to bore you about now. But what I'd say is while I am this person who values evidence based practice and the importance, the integral, importance of facilitating scientific discovery within the healthcare professions, including and especially nursing, for our case. I would not contend that we should exclude the clinician perspective or that we should somehow relegate the clinician to a substandard role of just taking what evidence we have and implementing it at face value. First of all, I don't suggest anybody does anything at face value with the scientific evidence because the scientific evidence needs to be uh, interpreted properly and intelligently. And then it really repackaged for each individual client. And here it really cuts to the point of what I'm trying to say. Evidence-based practice is population-based. And population health and personal health are not the same thing. And when I do a study of 45 people, let's say, and then I get some average population parameter estimates or some point estimate of an effect size or something like this, right? That's an average. That's it's an average point estimate. Even if you expand that to be a confidence interval, let's say it's a 95% or 90% or 99% confidence interval, it doesn't so much matter, you're still getting population level information because that's what statistics gives you. Now, statistical applications to biomedical sciences and nursing are, and other healthcare discipline sciences are the predicate for our evidence base. But what that means is that if you were to look at individual level data points within those projects, you would see, significant variation across individuals included in the study. And the reason I'm saying this, and the relevance of what I'm saying now to the point I'm trying to make, is that there is significant variation across individuals, and that matters when you're a clinician because you don't know whether the person you're treating falls at the average point, at the median, let's say, and if you look at a study, let's say it's on, you know, just to keep with the theme, this brief pod, I guess, is functional abdominal pain symptoms, you don't know if they fall within the median of IBS symptoms. Or for this particular study you're looking at, maybe you're looking at a a novel medication for functional IBSD symptoms and it's, you know, some kind of new antispasmodic, let's say. And you see that this point estimate shows a, signif- a statistically significant and seemingly robust result at the average. But what if the person you're treating doesn't fit into that average and, let's say, that they happen to be a Hispanic um male around, you know, 55. But the average in that study was a white cis female who was in her mid-20s. And let's say that it also took into account socioeconomic status and she was in a sort of middle-upper-class range and let's say he's not. Or let's say he is in an even higher uh, bracket. You know, the point is because of the population based nature of evidence-based practice and clinical research in healthcare, we are prone to, well, no, we have to use the evidence we have at our fingertips through these types of research studies and implement them in daily patient care. But the problem is we have to jump outside of the appropriate level of interpretation, which is the population average, to an individual patient. And every so often your patient will fall into the average for that type of that study, for example. But more often than not, they won't fit the criteria for inclusion if they were to try to sign up for that study, which means that the study results are not going to necessarily apply to them. And here's what you need to know about clinical research. If you have a randomized controlled study of 200 people, but the inclusion criteria specifies that they must be adolescents between 10 and 17 years old, and then you get some statistically significant result in this population, well, these are adolescents. There's a certain developmental trajectory that's involved there. There are a host of different neurobehavioral components that might limit your ability to generalize the results to anything except for other adolescents. And so if you're 40, perhaps the results might have implications for you, but more likely than not, those results would not replicate in your age range, in your developmental stage. Depends, of course, what it is that we're talking about here, but there is such wide variation that you cannot rely exclusively on the population average. Again, I'm beating this into the ground And I don't mean to be so redundant, but the point I'm actually trying to make here for this second piece of this brief pod is that the clinicians who are taking the evidence base and applying it to their patient population, they are required to use in a nuanced and sophisticated way, their clinical expertise to guide their ability to implement and interpret the scientific evidence. It's also the case, and this is why I became a clinician before I continued on my path through scientific research, that clinicians have access to the most important questions. And that's actually the most important component of science is the ability to ask the right the so-called right questions. It is hard to know a priori what types of questions might be the most important in terms of results later on. However, when you are working with clientele, and you're face-to-face with a person who's dealing with something troubling, and you start to see trends in your patient population, you begin to become acutely aware of the types of questions that actually matter to your population. And this becomes a crucial element of your ability to delve into the scientific literature, even if you don't want to contribute to the scientific literature in any meaningful sort of knowledge generation type of way your ability to navigate the literature and then pull out relevant studies and then the requirement of you as a as an able sophisticated clinician to be able to properly interpret that in light of your particular client's needs is challenging but it's requisite we need clinicians in order to have true evidence-based practice. As a scientist, I can tell you there is no scenario in which the clinician's views are not pivotal. It's absolutely paramount to have clinical expertise guiding our research questions and guiding the implementation and interpretation of our studies in light of their particular patients. That said, there are too many clinicians that will deviate so far away from what the evidence would indicate that we have to be very careful as clinical researchers and as clinicians more broadly when we're trying to understand the literature and how it, how it may or may not impact our patient population or our specific patient in front of us. If we go off the rails because we're unconvinced I think there's a certain danger. You sort of live on a knife's edge as a clinician, and it's a strange and challenging place to be. But you have to be in tune with the research. You just have to understand the limitations of the research. And as researchers, we need to understand the critical importance of clinicians in our ability to continue to ask the right questions and our ability to be able to take the results of our studies and continue to adapt them for patients that do not fit into our original mold.